note sheet tonight, right? Tonight, we are talking about where the meaning is found. So if you have not been part of the series, uh, we have been building on uh, just the foundations of what hermeneutics is. So the first week we start talking about what is hermeneutics. We define that as the arts and science of studying the Bible. Um, Bible study methods ultimately is what hermeneutics is. And so we've been looking through, last week we looked at the literary context. Uh, actually, that was two weeks ago. Last week, Jason taught. Uh, what did you teach again? <laughs> word studies, that's right. The word studies. So last week we talked about word studies. Two weeks, in, two weeks ago we talked about literary context. And then three weeks ago we talked about historical context. And then other things as well before that. Next week we'll be talking about um, the role of the Holy Spirit in uh, hermeneutics. Uh, but tonight... It's going to be a little bit different as we're talking about meaning. So it's kind of philosophical um, a little bit tonight. So I won't try to get into the philosophical categories. uh, But as you can see, the introduction or the beginning of your note sheet, the first question, and I want us to discuss this, um, what is meaning? So when you hear meaning, how would you try to explain that? or even define that, right? We as Christians, we're trying to pull the meaning out of the text, uh, do exegesis, pull the meaning out, uh, but what is this thing that we are after? I think we all know what it is, right? But it's a little tricky to try to define it. Truth. Truth. Okay. Truth can be a part of meaning, right? We're seeking the truth, um, right? What are you saying? Like, like I don't want to feel like, so like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. I'm just like, this is what I'm trying to say. Like, this is what I'm saying. This is what, okay. I don't know, that's what I think meaning is. what I'm trying to communicate to you. So it's what you are saying, yeah. right? Well, the idea that's being conveyed. The idea that's being conveyed. I like that. And hopefully that idea is a truthful idea. Um, when it's scripture, we know it. Is, we know it is right. Uh, so there's a couple different pieces to this. Um, there is uh, something we could talk about. We could talk about subjective meaning. We could talk about objective meaning. Um, some things could have more subjective type of meaning. Some things could have more of an objective type of meaning. How would you all try to distinguish those two? What's the difference between an objective meaning or a subjective meaning? Like subjective would be like through a personal lens. What was that? Like subjective would be through like a personal lens. Yeah. Or objective would be through like just in general. Okay. So we have subjective meaning, um, and we'll be pulling this all together and seeing where, where I'm going with this. Subjective meaning is personal lens, so it could be different, right? Um, so say uh, we are, we've talked about this before, looking at an art piece, um, and someone is pulling a meaning out of that and saying it's making me feel happy, given emotion, right? It's a subjective meaning. To the next person, you can make them feel angry, whatever 
for whatever reason. Um, and then as opposed to an objective meaning, which is more so of what? Okay, so that's getting to more of the, the truth, kind of like what you mentioned. Um, there is something that's true no matter wh- who looks at it or who says something about it, right? And that's more objective truth. Um, so as we talk about meaning, we are, this is, uh, like I said, a philosophical um, subject. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but last semester when we talked about the doctrine of God, I introduced some terms. Um, one of the terms was metaphysics. Does anyone remember that term, metaphysics? Metaphysics is ultimately asking the question, what is really real? What is really real in this world? Right? And that's ultimately all around what is meaning. Trying to find meaning in life. Right? A lot of people try to find meaning in life. Try to find meaning in really anything is... Um, is a big pursuit, and that's all a metaphysical type of pursuit. Uh, so that's what we're doing uh, tonight, looking at what, where is meaning found. Um, you could see on your note sheet, there's three proposed answers to this. Uh, we have authorial intention, or authorial intent, uh, and I believe these are some terms we've talked about before. Uh, so you could write in your line here. The authorial intention is meaning is determined by the intention of the author, right? So meaning is determined by the author. So this is now getting to where is meaning found, right? Who controls this meaning that we are after, right? This, whatever this thing is that we know what it is, but it's hard to define who controls it. The first option that we could look at is the author who wrote, say, a book, the author, or the artist who painted the painting, right? The one, the intelligent, the intelligent mind behind um, whatever is being communicated. Uh, Second, we have reader response. And this one is, meaning is determined by the reader or a community of readers. Uh, So, Meaning is determined by the reader or a community of readers. Uh, so this would be more of the subjective meaning, right, versus the objective meaning. Authorial intention is more objective, right, because it's the author saying this is what it means for whatever book we're looking at versus the reader response. And then this third one is kind of interesting. Who's heard of this third one, textuality? It's not a made-up word. I did not make it up. Uh, this one is when the text itself can determine meaning apart from the author. When the text itself can determine the meaning apart from the author, which sounds kind of strange because the text doesn't have an intelligent mind to determine things. Um, so, But we'll talk about it. Uh, so these are the three things that we're working with, right? We're talking about the author, the receiver, so the reader, and then also just the text itself. Um, so let's cut to the chase. When you look at Scripture, right, where is meaning found in those three things? It might be a tricky one between... Uh, 
What was that? Like the author writes it for a certain purpose. We read it, and we might have a subjective meaning from it, and then God controls it, so that's the textuality. Okay, well, what, what do others think? How Does anyone want to respond to Chris? What do you guys think? She said all three. Chris was saying all three. Um, there's a component of all three being at play when you read Scripture and you try to find the meaning of a text, whichever text you're looking at, I vote for text. You vote for text. Right. Okay. And, and I don't understand the difference really between authorial because if the author wrote it, you, there's almost an assumption implied that he meant it. Yeah. I mean, and to say that he wrote something but didn't mean it, that's kind of a... Yeah. That's where you have to go. Sure. And so there's a lot of similarities between the text one and the author one. Let's look at some of these quotes and let's talk a little bit more about the third one to try to um, help us understand a little bit more some of the differences. So you can see here from Kevin Van Hooser uh, from the book, Is There Meaning in This Text? Uh, he says, the autonomy of the text is a condition of its surplus of meaning, that is, of its uh, transcending its original situation and having something to say to readers in the present. So here we have an idea where an author somewhere wrote something down, say thousands of years ago, like we have in Scripture. Um, and for whatever reason, we lose all context of what was behind that text. Right? So we don't really understand the context. We have context for Scripture, so we can apply this to other things. Uh, and so now we look at it today. Say we find a manuscript with no context behind it. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know... Um, the situation it was written for, whatever, right? Uh, so we can't really explore into the authorial intent. Uh, all we have to go off of is the grammar, the syntax, right? What are the words actually saying? Uh, and we try to apply that, interpret that, find the meaning behind it um, from the text itself. So think of it like this. Authorial intent, we are trying to find the meaning that's behind the text. We're using the text as a tool to get to this idea of meaning that's behind it somehow. Right? That's authorial intent. Uh, with textuality, the meaning is on the text. It's not behind it. It's on the text. We're looking at the text itself. We're not trying to look beyond the text. Um, so that sounds very technical, I know. Uh, but let's, let's continue. So look at this next quote. A text has only potential meaning until a reader awakens and makes sense of it. So with textuality, we don't know where the meaning is. We can't say we're trying to find the authorial intent. We have no idea what the authorial intent is. And so there's some type of meaning, and we're trying to find that, right? It um, awakens or makes sense of it um, here. So... Think of it like this, right? Authorial intent is what I would propose what we want to do with Scripture, right? What, we, what have we been saying this whole semester? We've been saying when we, when we read Scripture, we want to ask ourselves, what did the author originally intend to say, right? Whatever text it is, we want to ask that. 
we definitely do not want to do the reader response um, way of interpretation because when we do that, we are simply asking ourselves, what does this mean to me? Right? That's the wrong question. Uh, it doesn't matter what, it, what you think it means to you. Right? There's an intended meaning, and that's what we're after. This is why hermeneutics is difficult, because we're trying to get to that meaning that's behind the text that the author intended. Um, and textuality is kind of a combination of the two, where you're looking at the text that the author had writ has written, uh, but you're not as concerned about the author and what he actually intended to say that's behind the text, um, but you're looking at a text and applying it within your own context absent from their context, if that makes sense. So textuality doesn't look at context. It's absent of context. All you have are words on the page, and you're applying it, applying it in your context. All right, so I know this is very uh, technical right now. Yeah. You would look at the text and interpret it as those words meant in the 1800s. Yes, yes. But with that, you already have some type of context of where it's coming from, right? Uh, whether it's in the 1800s, you could see potentially who wrote it, what the situation was. Um, there's several different things you could apply into it to help understand the context of it. With textuality, you're not necessarily as concerned at the original context at all. Um, you're just looking at words and determining what it means in your own context. So therefore, meaning can change with textuality because contexts change, right? Societies change throughout time. And this is why it's very technical. Uh, some people, as we discuss this topic on where meaning's found, tend to just stick with authorial intention and reader response, and don't try, they don't try to get into the textuality component of it. Um, but that's what's meant by textuality, is trying to find meaning in a text absent of the context, original context. So like, you know, have you ever heard of Duchamp's Fountain? I'm putting I'm not it sure. into art speak, because that's where I get it. So it's a urinal. Okay. It's stuck on a pedestal in the middle of a museum. Okay. So the author's intention was to be crazy and put a journal <laughs> on the pedestal, right? Sure. Um, the reader's response would be, you know, what is my response to this thing? Yeah. Is it funny? And is it? Is it funny? Is it disgusting? Am I mm -hmm. like? Is it actually a piece of art? It does look beautiful. It's a great design. Yeah. I'm thankful for it. funny. Or and the, so then you get to the textuality. Yeah. I look at it and I say, that is a urinal. Yeah. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it, it could be right. And then say, a hundred years from now, right, situations completely change and we don't use urinals, but we use something else and they look at that and they have no idea what it is and they try to, they say it's something that's lo that looks similar to something they know, right? So the meaning has changed. But it wouldn't still be a urinal? It, it, it would still be a urinal, but they wouldn't know it's a urinal. <laughs> uh, but does that example help anyone? Uh, where the meaning changes because the context change, and we, they, some people may not have 
the right context 100 years from now of what that is. I mean, I'm sure people would still know what a urinal is. Um, but people use the tools they have in their time and their context to try to interpret something. But they're not going to get like the author's intent to be like obscure. Exactly. How does that vary from the reader response? Because when I see the language, a reader awakens it. Mm -hmm. That looks very similar to a reader response. I think it is very similar to the reader response. Um, so these are the three categories people talk about when they say where is meaning found. Um, and there's a lot of discussion where some people would put textuality closer to authorial intent because they try to find an objective meaning that's actually in the text. But then others, as Jason would point out, would say it's closer to reader response. And I actually would put it closer to reader response. Um, because it's still the reader determining that meaning based on just what they, what, what they know, um, based on their own context. So it's the reader awakening the meaning, as Jason pointed out. So I would fall in that category as well. All right. I know this is, this is um, a little difficult. Are there further questions on this section, or just clarification? What point is that? Because like I could see meaning coming from all of those places, but your point is that when we study the Bible, we need to be looking just at textuality. No, at authorial intent. Authorial intent. Correct. Oh. It seems to me, though, when you're reading, it, it gets to meaning gets incorporated basically in the whole thing you're reading. So yeah. one time. If you read a text in the Bible, you're going to find a line you don't understand totally, but if you read the whole thing, it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, meaning is found in the text. Exactly. And um, that's what we want to do as Christians, right? Try to find the meaning and pull it out of the text itself. Well, who determines the exact meaning? Yeah, and that's what we're after. You know, and... You know, if you say it's one thing, mm -hmm. and he says it's something else. Yeah. And so that's the question. Right? That's the question we're after, right? Mm -hmm. Who determines the meaning? Is it the author who wrote the text? Um, we'll, we'll talk about interpretation later, right? But where is it originally actually found? Is the meaning found in me reading the text? Can I just read the text and say, this is what I think the meaning is? Or is it found and some abstract idea that it's just embedded into a text and there's some objective meaning that's found in the text. I don't buy that, and I don't believe there could be some objective meaning in the text itself absent of the author. You're saying for, this is for all meanings, not just biblical meanings? Yes. I disagree. Okay. <laughs> well, we could we I could talk about biblical meaning. Yes, I get you. Yeah. Well, we could talk about art and things like that. But for the context today, to keep it simple, okay. um, let's talk about biblical <laughs> context, right? <laughs> well, biblical meaning, right? So that's the right question you asked. Where who determines the meaning? So hopefully, what everyone is after, this is what I'm saying. Hopefully, everyone is after what the author intended it to say, right? When we read the epistles, when we read Romans, we're after what Paul meant, right? That's 
that's what we're after. And so then you can then ask, well, how do I know this person is more right than this person with different interpretations? And that's the hard work of hermeneutics. Right? And that's what we'll be talking about this entire semester of looking at the historical context, looking at the literary context, um, looking at the meaning of a text in relation to the broader context, looking at what other epistles Paul wrote, um, doing word studies like we talked about last week. So all of those different components are part of it. But let me point out that no matter what, you have to determine a subjective opinion of what the author intended since you can't talk to the author. You know, that, I think that was what he was saying. Who's saying, who's saying what that's intent? We can say, well, we can look at other writings of Paul and therefore we determine what Paul is, but it's, it still becomes a subjective on us because we don't have Paul here to talk to. Mm. And I would add to it is Paul or somebody else may have wrote because they were in the Holy Spirit with unknowing what the intent really was because we're, we're really looking for the Holy Spirit's intent of, for the writing, which sure. is even harder than the finding the person who wrote the author's intent. Yeah. Because that person, you know, you can find a history, but then you got to look at the whole Bible to say yeah. what the, the, the Spirit was intending and why this was shared. Mm -hmm. Because, let's say, Revelation, I, I dare say John knew very little of most of what he was saying, <laughs> what the intent was, yeah. but God had a purpose for sharing that because he was sharing the vision as it was shared to him. Sure, and, and that's something we'll talk more about, right? A little bit later, hopefully tonight, if we get, if we get to it. Um, because this is, this is a good conversation, but before acknowledge, like what you're saying is, is right, right? Where we could have various opinions on a text, so therefore it might seem subjective or be subjective in that sense. But I want us to recognize that before we even get to that point, that we at least acknowledge that there is an objective meaning behind the text. Um, whether you have it or not, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But at least for us to recognize that there is an objective meaning behind the text, and that objective meaning ultimately is in what the author intended. And we could even divide up what author we're talking about, right? Human author or divine author. We have to take that into consideration, right? Um, and so then we need the help of the Holy Spirit and things like that as well. I think this is important because if there is no objective meaning, there is no significance to your search. Yes. Um, Lana, you're right to talk about our epistemological uncertainty, our humility in the subjective way or the uncertainty of which we are approaching a text, but if there is no objective meaning, then there is no true purpose for the study of it. Um, but we do need to hold on to that with a great deal of humility yes. and uncertainty. Yes. So whether you're right or you're wrong, we have to be humble, right? We have to study, learn from others, do theology, study the Bible with the church at large, right? It's not just ourselves, learn from others, um, but recognize we are after a meaning that is true, right? After a meaning that is always the same, no matter what, 
Um, doesn't change based on what culture you live in, doesn't change based on what language you speak, doesn't change based on where you live. It's always the same. And so that's the thing we need to at least recognize, right? And that is found in the authorial intent, whether we talk about human author or divine author. That's what we're after. I just wanted to introduce you to these two other um, categories for fun. And this is uh, what uh, people talk about when they talk about this subject, right? Um, and so it's worth at least mentioning. All right. So what is meaning? Meaning is whatever is found beyond the text. Um, and that's what we're after. And it's determined, right, who controls it by the author ultimately by God, the divine author, but then also by the human author. All right, second section, different types of meaning. Um, it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> uh, tonight is very technical. Uh, so here we have literal versus allegorical. Um, who wants to explain the difference between those two? At least try to explain the difference. What is the literal meaning? Straightforward telling of a, a telling of events or what the things are. And allegorical is telling you a story that and that tells you the the purpose of the thing, but by by a story that may or may not be true. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. And so there can be allegorical parables and things like that. I think we talked about um, when we talked about genres two weeks ago. So that's, that's right. Uh, remember, when we talked about literary context two weeks ago. There was um, one that was allegorical, right? We talked about the allegorical um, genre or type of literature. And I want to distinguish uh, the difference between the allegorical um, type of literature, like we put parables and things like that in it. I want to distinguish that from the allegorical principle of interpretation. So there's a distinction between an allegorical principle of interpretation when we interpret things allegorically um, because we can come to an allegorical text such as different parables in scripture and interpret them um, literally in the sense that it's what the author intended it to say. So let me back up a little bit. Uh, I would define, as we talk about the difference between these two, literal meaning, literal uh, meaning in a text is what the author literally intended it to say. So you can write that down. Literal meaning is the plain meaning of the text. It's what the author literally intended it to say. So, so defining if, itself with itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know you're not supposed to do that. But... So when an, a biblical author intends to write a parable allegorically, right? we can interpret that literally by interpreting that, understanding it allegorically. So that's different than an allegorical principle of interpretation. Like Lazarus. Like, in, in Abraham's bosom. In Abraham's bosom, sure. Uh, and we could talk about... Um, different parables, uh, but it, it gets very technical. So if you're not following, that's all right. 
Um, we could continue. <laughs> uh, so I'll, so I, I defined what a literal interpretation is with the word itself. Yes, you're right. Uh, but an allegorical interpretation is one that treats a text as meaning something other than what it apparently says. So I'll say that again. Allegorical interpretation is one that treats a text as meaning something other than what it apparently says. Right? The literal context, or literal meaning is what it apparently says. And the allegorical is interpreting it to mean something other than what it apparently says. Um, Isn't so, it more like a hidden meaning? Yes. Because yeah, there could be... Yes. It's not different. I think if, they, if you interpret a passage allegorically, it may say something. You may, okay, it said that, but it also means mm -hmm. it, this. Yes. Jesus but, got in the boat and crossed the, river, uh, crossed the, the lake. Yeah, so it, you could also say it's the spiritual, like spiritual meaning, or you're spiritualizing a text um, when you add an allegorical interpretation to it. Uh, you're adding a meaning other than what it apparently says. So, yes, it could mean the literary context, but then you want to go beyond that. Um, literary meaning, go beyond that to interpret it allegorically. Conveyed in a story or example? What was that? Can't it be conveyed in a story or example so it's easier to understand? You can't uh, give illustrations. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, like story. So that story maybe is a whole story that incorporates. He's saying that. just what you're trying to say. Or an example. That's still literal in his in the definition. Oh. Yeah. The allegorical is is then then you taking something completely different from it other than the story that you said, you know, it says get up, that tells us today to get out of the boat, Yeah. you know, because because Jesus told Peter to get out of the boat and he walked towards him, and therefore, allegorically, we need to get out of the boat. That's correct. That would be a good example, allegorically. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I do recognize, Nancy, that this is um, a harder week. Um, it's very technical in a sense. Um, and ultimately, if we don't get anything out of tonight, uh, I want us to get that what we're after is what the author intended, um, and that is what the literal meaning of the text is, whatever the author intended. Uh, and that's what we're after when we do Bible studies. right? So can we play with the text briefly? Sure. Okay. So... First uh, Kings chapter 17, you guys are going to help me with this text and one of my responsibilities because this is a text, that, 17, chapter 17, verse 8. You guys can decide if I am being a mean grader when I grade this and accuse people of allegorical interpretation or not. <laughs> and if I should change the way I grade. Okay. So First Kings 17, 7, or 8 and following. Um, and I'm going to give you the allegorical, uh, what I think is an allegorical, and you guys can decide if it's literal or not. Um, or the Lord came to him, being Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. For behold, I commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. 
And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make yourself something, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have, you done against, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. He said, give me your son. He took him up from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. He cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am a sojourn by killing her son? He stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Okay? What do you guys understand to be the primary intent or primary meaning of that text or that story? Hmm. What does it relate to? You don't have to nail it first, but take a stab. God's provision. God's miraculous provision. To display to a widow that Elijah was a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. God miraculously provides and displays it through a prophet. Yeah. Okay. So, that I have a series of students that work through this text, and I grade 20 of these every eight weeks. Um, and I see about three or four students each time come and they get asked, how does this text point to Christ? What ways would you say that this text points to Christ? And this is, by the way, most of the time where allegorical stuff. And, and we'll get to that. They're going to get to this in a minute. Yes. Any ways that this text points to Christ? Okay, the son died and came back, so we want to go there quickly. So is Jesus, so is the son a type of a, a wife that we think of Jesus because the son died? Probably not. No, I, I think of, of Jesus bringing people back to life. Right, Jesus, Jesus miraculously provides displaying the truthfulness of God. Okay, that, that's where I would probably go. I probably would not say that her gathering sticks is like the, 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 or the people gathering a cross to hang Jesus on. Okay. How about the fact that Elijah laid on the boy three times praying before he was raised from the dead? Does that mean that, is that like and the same? Is that pointing to Jesus being in the grave three days? I think it's just pointing to the fact that there's a number three that... So you don't think that there's spiritual significance in the fact that he laid on him three times and prayed three times? All right, so you're marking them wrong with me on that one, okay? What about the bread? 
The bread represents the bread of life in this text. And Jesus is the bread of life. So when they were eating that, it's like they were consuming the bread of life. In the Lord's Supper. Yeah, it's like they were doing the Lord's Supper. The oil was the Holy Spirit. Okay, so those are the, the allegorical methods that students inevitably use. I have about two to three out of 20 that will say that the laying on of him three times was like Jesus was, that's the way this points to Jesus because Jesus was dead for three days. You know, it didn't work the other three times. Was, was that the problem? Was Jesus trying for three days here? Yeah. You know, and it didn't work. Yeah, your example fall, falls yeah. through. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's really, that's right where allegorical is finding different components of a story and adding a meaning into it. Um, because it sounds cooler. Um, you're, you're taking a, a true theological, spiritual truth um, and trying to apply that onto a text where it's not intended to be. Um, and so that's, that's allegorical interpretation. We want to stay away from that, right? We want to stick with the literal um, meaning uh, and pull out what's the author intended to, to say in the text. Um, that's where we know we're not misusing scripture. Right? Scripture is God's word and it speaks to us in who God is. So when, when Jesus said to, to give it, forgive 70 times 7, was, he, was it a literal or was it allegorical? See, and what I say is... And you're, but it's intent. Yes, it's what the author intended. So I'll, what did the author, did the author intend for you to actually figure out what that precise number is? Or was he ultimately saying, just, just keep forgiving? Yes. Um, and so that's a crucial distinction, I think, um, that we need to make when what, I'm, what we mean when we say literal meaning. Uh, so look here. Uh, um, John Chrysostom, since I like church history, I like to quote different people in church history, you could see here. Um, he kind of speaks to the way we should look to the literal interpretation of a text. He says, we must not examine words as bare words, else many absurdities will follow. We, will, we must uh, mark the mind of the writer. What did the writer intends to say that's the literal meaning of the text uh, i wrote that he's you could see john chrysostom of antioch um, the church of antioch as opposed to the church in alexandria in early christianity uh, were drastically different in how they interpreted scripture the church in antioch interpreted the scripture believed that you had to interpret scripture literally and the church in alexandria um, interpreted scripture largely allegorically. So it's very significant that he's from Antioch and he holds to the literal sense of scripture and he says that we should not examine words as bare words. So I think you just brought up a good example of what that might look like. Um, forgive 70 times seven, so therefore literal meaning is you have to figure out what that is and forgive only that amount of time, right? But he is pointing out, um, but we must mark the mind of the writer. What did the author actually intend to say? And that's what the, liter the literal meaning is. Right. If we look at the bare words, 
we will start falling, falling into textuality, right, and not authorial intent. Because we're looking at the words absence of the context, if that makes sense. All right, the next quote, Martin Luther, I think we all know Martin Luther, nailed the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg Church door uh, in 1517, start of the Reformation. He says, I consider the aspiration of several senses to Scripture. He's talking about the allegorical interpretation method, where there are several different meanings to it. I consider the aspiration of several senses to Scripture to be not merely dangerous and useless for teaching, but even to cancel the authority of Scripture, whose meaning ought always to be one and the same. Right? He is saying that it's no good to have multiple meanings of Scripture, but more than that, it takes away the authority of Scripture, right? whose meaning ought to always be one and the same. The authority of Scripture right, has one meaning in the text. A text has one meaning, but many applications, we say. All right? And where that one meaning is found, that's where the authority is found. And the, author- and the authority is found there because... Um, that's um, what ultimately the divine author intends to say. And the divine author has the supreme authority overall. All right. Uh, question for you guys, and this will get fun. And I don't know if we have time to discuss all of this. Uh, is it allegorical? Is it an allegorical interpretation to find Christ in the Old Testament? As in, we look at many different messianic prophecies in, in the Old Testament, and we find Christ in them, right? But this is before Christ came to the world. This is before he was born, uh, before he was revealed uh, as the incarnate Son of God. Is it allegorical interpretation to find Christ in the Old Testament? Perfect example uh, turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And you guys may know this section, or this prophecy. Isaiah 7 verse 14 specifically. Whoever pulls it up um, someone want to read it for us? Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay. We see in the Gospels that this is applied to Christ, right? Uh, Matthew 1, 23 uh, puts this specifically on Christ, right? He was born of the Virgin Mary and he will be called Emmanuel. Um, is it an allegorical interpretation to find Christ in this passage here in Isaiah? What is the context of Isaiah chapter 7? Isaiah chapter 7 is about uh, a king, Ahaz of Judah, and Isaiah is going to give him a sign for him in his lifetime um, to show... um, that's God, um, how God is going to act. There's a lot of different nations that surround, that's surrounding Judah here, right, that's going to um, take up war against them. Um, and here we see, let's read it in the larger context. Does someone want to read uh, 
verse 10 through 17. We'll, we'll do that for now. Verse 10 through 17. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol and O high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall be encouraged the honey wane. He knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. How far? 18? Uh, through verse 17. Okay. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as you have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, king of Assyria. Okay. So here we have King Ahaz. Uh, there's kings that are posing threats against him. And Ahaz, first off, is not going to God for help. Um, God comes to him through the prophet Isaiah. And Ahaz acts like he's humble when he's not, because he's not going to God first off for help. To, by saying, I don't want to put God to the test. Um, so he acts in humility, even though... He's pretending humility there. But God's going to give him a sign anyway, even though Ahaz doesn't want a sign. And what is the sign? That, this, that there will be a child that's born. Um, and before he is e able to know good or evil, these kings that are against him will disappear. Right? And so, I ask you guys again. This is just one example is it allegorical interpretation to find Christ in the Old Testament? There's a meaning here that you could say, well, there's a child born um, in his lifetime that acted as a sign, but then also there's another meaning that we apply to Christ then when he's born. And he came in the New Testament. What are you guys' thoughts? It has to be a prediction. Is it his intent to prophesy about the Messiah? Yeah. Is that what he? Is that what he means? Yeah, and and that's. It's hard to know exactly how much some of the human authors knew about the Messiah. They knew that the Messiah was going to come, and I believe Isaiah had um, some knowledge and intent in expressing that. Right, that. He will be called Emmanuel. Um, so, what was that? Isaiah 53 describes him again. Yeah, Isaiah 53 is a good example, right? Uh, with the suffering servants that Christ was going to be ultimately killed on the cross and suffer. Um, so, the reformers, Martin Luther uh, and many others, the reformers were unwilling to call their interpretation allegorical um, in interpreting Christ in the Old Testament. Of course, the reformers saw passages like Christ and said, yes, that's, that's the Messiah. That's Christ. We have to say that's how the New Testament interprets this passage. right? Uh, so we're using Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so 
uh, the reformers would, of course, say, yes, this is Christ in, in the Old Testament, but they refused to call this allegorical. And instead, they viewed uh, key persons, actions, and events in the Old Testament as figures or types uh, that, while historically real themselves, never, nevertheless prefigured later persons, actions, events in the New Testament. Um, so, as in this child that was born was a type or a, a figure of the one to come. Um, as we think of the book of Hebrews, right, Melchizedek, um, the priestly king in the Old Testament, we say that that was a type of a Christ to come. Um, so there's a distinction, a difference between allegorical interpretation and a typological interpretation. And this, again, it's getting technical here. But you could write, I believe I have on your note sheet, typology. Um, you could write this on the line. Typology uh, points to or foreshadows what Christ ultimately fulfills. Right? Um, typology points to or foreshadows what Christ ultimately fulfills, uh, such as that passage in Isaiah um, and many of the other Old Testament messianic prophecies. So, uh, the question, next question becomes, how are the typological or figurative or typological interpretations different from allegorical interpretations? Right, they sound very similar. Um, I said... Typology is a yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it like that. <laughs> yeah, well, we have to be careful, and I think Jason also affirmed this. We have to be careful with typologies as well and not try to put typology in every single instance in Scripture, right? We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we know it's appropriate to do that when the New Testament does that, right? Testament. So, it, like, it's really hard for us to look and say, hey, Isaiah 7.14, yeah, that was allegorical. That was a bad idea to interpret that that way, because the New Testament does. But when the New Testament doesn't interpret something, for example, uh, Isaiah, or Isaac, um, Abraham and Isaac, and God will provide for himself a lamb on the, the moment of sacrifice, um, but the, God will provide for himself a lamb. Is that a foreshadowing of Jesus? Is that a typology of Jesus? How do you point to Jesus from Genesis 22? Yeah. When the New Testament does it, we have to say, okay, great. Even if we're not totally positive how you got there. Yes. Um, yeah. And Jason and I, and I have had this discussion specifically in that text um, a while ago, actually. Um, so is there a difference? That's this next question. How are, and you can see I'm saying figurative and typology synonymously here in this question. How are figurative and typological interpretations different from allegorical interpretations? So I said uh, many individuals like Martin Luther, Aldrich Zwingli, Cal John Calvin, many of the reformers would um, see Christ in the Old Testament, of course. Um, Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. But they would definitely say, no, it was not allegorical. Um, we don't want to stay, we don't want to interpret scripture allegorically, um, allegorical bad, as Chris says. Um, so how would they get around things like this? How would they interpret that differently? So figurative or typological interpretations relates, this is how they're different. Uh, 
typological interpretation relates two items that stand in historical relation of anticipation and fulfillment. So a typo typology looks at a past historical, real historical event that has happened um, and see uh, how that points or anticipates a future thing. Ultimately, many times it's, it's Christ, right? How Christ fulfills that. Um, relates two items that stand in historical relation of anticipation, anticipation and fulfillment. Those are the two components. Whereas no such relation regulates the connection between uh, the literal and spiritual senses in allegory. Right, allegory, you have two components as well. Um, you have the literal sense and then the deeper, f more spiritual meaning. How do those things relate? Um, they don't relate the same way typology does. Right? Typology uh, relates two items that stand in historical relation of anticipation, past anticipation, and then future fulfillment. That's what typology is. Uh, whereas no such relation regulates the connection between the literal and then the further spiritual sense in allegory. Uh, and that's how many of the reformers then would distinguish the difference between those things, right? Anticipation, fulfillment, right? They connect, they work together versus just the literal and then the more the deeper spiritual meaning. Um, does that kind of make sense? Um, and so I, I like typology. I think it's incredibly helpful and I think it's, it's really cool to see how scripture works together, ultimately, is a story about Christ um, and how he saves humanity. Um, and what are some, what would, what would be some other examples of typologies you guys could think of? Um, where there is a past anticipation of something that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Um, as we just said, it could be very dangerous in calling out different types of things as typologies. Um, where there isn't necessarily warrant for them, but this is where some people may differ on how much room you give for this. Jonah in the three days. Uh, yes, fish. Jonah in the three days, in the belly of the whale, and Jesus in the grave fish. for three days. Fish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we could apply that one because Christ does that one, right? Well, so we know, we know that one's But you said it's safe. a typology. What was that? You asked for a typology. Yes. So that's a good example is what I'm saying. Definitely. It's fun when we, I mean, there's a big discussion in how much of Israel is a typology <laughs> of now the church, um, the body of Christ. So it's still fulfilled in, in Christ and his body. That's a big discussion amongst people. And then another big one is the Old Testament law, right? The sacrifices done, the animal sacrifices, ultimately foreshadowing um, the sacrifice, the one true final sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Um, so there's a deeper. But is that there. is that doing the taking it? You know, is that doing the that was that the intent? Yes, I would say I would say yes. That's the intent of why God put it. But in those the, but that's your interp your subjective thing is the. The temple and all those things were to point. Yeah. 
Well, we know it's not subjective, right? Because we have the Old Testament to help us interpret the Old Testament. And that's how the New Testament authors, ultimately God showing what was fulfilled in the Old Testament. Right? So we're not the ones coming up with those ideas ourselves. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, helps connect a lot of these things for us. Chris? But you're not breaking down the nitty-gritty. You're just saying the law. Because you wouldn't go like... That would the take cow, too long. the you know whatever that's I mean because yeah. I've heard a whole lot of detail about the the reason the temple was made was and they go through every little detail about the temple and how that is reflective. I thought it was sort of reflecting heaven. Then. Heaven or the you know I mean uh, all yeah. that uh, uh, yeah. uh, they take that the the step versus the one which is clearly displayed that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice and a few things that are clear, but a lot of them it's the interpretation of, you know, this was three foot and, and the reason this was, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's so much detail there. Um, and it's really cool when you start studying it and seeing how God intended it all to work. Um, but, but was that, are we doing... When you do that, are we doing that? This uh, the reader's response, or are we doing the allegorical? Yeah. When we met, you know, he said there'd be how many bowls in there, and <laughs> well, what we would be doing though, right, is we the only way to do studies like that is to look at the historical context and um, see what the meanings were uh, for the Jewish audience was at that time, and that's beyond me. Uh, and beyond this discussion right now. So I want to try to finish up this very last section with the last um, minute we have, even if we I don't know if we have last minute, but determine the theological principle. So to wrap it all up, the theological principle is what we are after, especially for those who teach God's word, those who are teachers here, uh, and to communicate a point. So when you're looking at a text in scripture, you want to come up with what is the main teaching point, the main principle that God is trying to communicate to us through this text. Um, and this is building the bridge between their context, what the world was like in the biblical times, to our context. Building the bridge over the river of all the differences, right? There's differences in language, culture, um, time, all those different things. So we want to try to build the theological principle. And so you can see here when we do that, the principle should be reflected in the text, obviously. We're, we want to pull it out of the text. Uh, the principle should uh, be timeless and not be tied to a specific situation. So therefore, we could apply it correctly for us today, right? So it would be true for them as it is true as well for us. The principle should not be culturally bound, right? We look at the cultural context, but then the, teach, the thing that we're pulling out from the text that we want to take with us can't be culturally bound because it, we live in different contexts, right? And then uh, next, the principle should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Make sure the rest of Scripture is teaching the same points. There's no contradictions. And lastly, the principle should be relevant to both the biblical audience and the contemporary audience. Um, so it's true for us, us as well today. So you can see on the bottom here, there's a chart. You can look through this on your own. On the top, there's an Old Testament context, looking at uh, Leviticus chapter 11, talking about holiness, right? Where don't eat pork, right? You're not supposed to eat pork. 
Um, let's talk about that in Leviticus 11. And then how, what would the theological principle be? So that how do we make it um, not culturally bound? How do we make it timeless? How do we make it apply to them and to us today without changing the meaning? You could see the steps in that ultimately coming to God is holy and wants his people to be holy. That's the intense, the authorial intense, therefore the literal meaning of the text. There's practical applications of it for them in the Old Testament. Don't eat pork, but the meaning is God is holy and we should be as well. Um, and you can see I, in parallel, a New Testament text also about holiness. Um, specific commands in the text, be self-controlled, be obedient to the truth, love one another. And ultimately at the end there, you could come up to with the same theological principle. God is holy and he wants us to be holy as well. Um, there's not as much of a river you need to cross with the New Testament passage, right? Uh, you could apply the more specific commands to us even today because we are not, because the river we have to cross in the theological bridge isn't as wide because we are all now under the new covenants. Whereas opposed in the Old Testament, Christ hadn't come yet, right? Under the law. So I know, again, there's a lot there and we didn't necessarily pull this section apart. Unfortunately, we don't have time. Um, so, does anyone have like one or two questions before we end? Okay. Hopefully, next week will definitely be um, a little easier as we talk about the Holy Spirit and His role um, in our Bible interpretation. All right, let me close this out in prayer if there's no questions. All right. Lord, we love you and we thank you um, that you have given us your word, Lord. Uh, we thank you that you have given us minds, Lord, and you have given us your spirit um, to work out the text, Lord, to find the meaning that's behind the words of the text, Lord, and what you intend to write in it, uh, what you intend to convey the meaning behind it, Lord, to us. I pray that we will take this truth, Lord, um, work it out in our lives, Lord. I pray that as we look to you, Lord, as you are holy, we um, strive for holiness ourselves. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that we just continue uh, to pursue you, Lord, continue to do the hard work to study your word uh, so that we um, can interpret it as best as we can, Lord, as possible, so that we can get to the objective truth that's behind the text. I pray these things in your name.